Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Throughout history, spiritual traditions like hoodoo and brujeria were misunderstood, demonized, and believed to be evil. That stigma was often created and reinforced by the legacies of colonialism. Although they're rooted in very different cultures, the traditions center on magic and spirituality, and they incorporate parts of mainstream religions like Christianity. Today, a number of young people are reclaiming these practices to connect with their past. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we return to an episode from last November about the resurgence and reclamation of spiritual traditions across the U.S. We'll hear from a practicing bruja on how her work is reconnecting to her ancestors. And later, we uncover the forgotten story of one of Tarot's most influential figures. But first... Hoodoo is a diverse set of spiritual practices that were created by enslaved Africans. It's sometimes called root work or conjuring, and practitioners, often known as hoodoo doctors, incorporate elements of botany and medicine into their practice. Hoodoo is still portrayed in the media as a dark magic, and it's derided by many. So what should we know about hoodoo and how it shapes Black spirituality today? Last year, I spoke with Dr. Yvonne Chirot, professor of religion at Swarthmore College. She's author of Black Magic, Religion and the African-American Conjuring Tradition. I asked Dr. Chirot what attracts her to this research, an area that includes connections between African-American religions, magic, and conjuring traditions. I think this is such an interesting area. When I first began to look at these things, maybe 25 years ago, maybe longer, uh, no one was really talking about them. No one was really talking about uh, African-American religion other than perhaps Christianity, sectarian traditions. So I really became drawn to it because I wanted to understand the origins of the religious traditions of Black people in the United States. So, And that includes everything. It includes Christianity, it includes Islam, it includes Judaism, but it also includes this this fuzzy area in between religion and what we, we call magic. So I really think I got started looking at this because there was a lacuna in the research itself. There was, you know, and the more that I I I read about it, the more that I learned about the history of these traditions, just the more fascinating it was. One of the things that comes through in your work is talking about how many of these spiritual practices and traditions came through during this period of enslavement in the United States and how the origins of these practices is directly related to people sort of affirming their identity in spite of these practices. How do you see the origins of these ancestral practices, the invisible institutions, as it's called? How do you see this connected during that time of slavery and the enslavement of African people? Yeah, absolutely. So one has to go to the source. And this is, and this is what is so powerful and so interesting to me. 
when we talk about religion in the United States, and religion is, you know, it's a very broad, it's a very broad thing. It's not just churches, as I said. But when we talk about the origins of religion, you really begin to see that religion is foundational. What's at question here? And this is why we always go back to slavery, is what counts as religion? and what doesn't count as religion. So it might it might come as a surprise to many of us that the first independent black institution was the black church of the AME church, which was established actually not far from where I live in Philadelphia. This was the first independent autonomous institution that African-American people created, a religious institution before schools, before newspapers, before anything. So the connection for me, as far as religion, hoodoo, magic, conjure, these, these, these other traditions, it comes through in slavery because it was one of the few areas that black folk had control over. And this isn't to say that it wasn't contested because as we know, enslaved African people, some of them became Christian. Some of them were forced by slave owners and missionaries to become Christian. Some of them chose something else. So slavery really creates a whole world in which we can, we can begin to understand the origins of religion. You mentioned this debate over what counts as religion, and it necessarily points to the question of who gets to decide. And what comes through in your work and, and the beauty of your work is that you frame this as this is an act of resistance for enslaved people. This is an affirmation of agency to decide whether it is a syncretic tradition or one that has been inherited and molded for those communities to be able to say, even in the face of tremendous rejection of our humanity, we will connect to a spiritual tradition that we create for ourselves on our own terms. How do you see that continuing to play through in many of these practices, but also the the important history of those traditions? Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that is, I think, is such an important question. And it speaks to why perhaps these traditions are coming around again today. So at the origins during slavery, you know, we, we were talking about people who came predominantly from Africa. So the question for, for, for me, as well as other scholars is, well, did they leave their religious traditions behind? Did they leave their cultural practices behind? And, and that was a huge debate in the academic community. What happens when African people become African-American people? But what I began to find is that even, I mean, as soon as these African, enslaved African people arrived, their religious practices, their religious uh, traditions were contested. And what I mean by that is that these were the things that enslavers or Europeans identified as magic, sorcery, all the things that we understand now as indigenous African religions were not called religions. They were not, they were not seen as religions. So the idea that black people, enslaved African American people were holding on to their cultural and ancestral traditions from Africa. They were also navigating this new world environment, uh, trying to adapt to it. 
everything about that says to me that this was a matter of resistance, even if it's if even if it's not a matter of fighting against someone who's oppressing you, it's holding on to something that was of value. It's, it's holding on to a piece of home, so to speak. But it's also that these magical traditions were used to mediate relationships. So there is a resistance element in that magic or you know what I call hoodoo and conjure is used as a form of mediating conflicts. So there's a strong stream of self-defense and protection in this magical tradition. We're at a space in the United States in particular where there's all these negative connotations associated with root work traditions or people not understanding voodoo or hoodoo or, or assigning their own cultural ignorance to define how others practice what they believe. What is that stigma? And how do you see these communities breaking through that stigma or saying, your definition of me cannot fit my tongue in terms of what I believe? I would say first, it's not unique to this tradition. We, you know, we are a nation, a religious nation, but we also are a nation that has a history of religious conflict between different groups. So, so that on the one hand is to be expected. If you're not part of the norm, you are, you're, you're basically the other. And then we have ways of demonizing, casting aside the other. But, but I would also say that, uh, part of the fear that comes from, you know, and I, and I, I've been looking at this, uh, a, for a long time, you see that sort of uh, fear partially emerging in slavery from the enslavers. Okay, so, you know, this is an alternative source of power. This is something that those who oppressed the enslaved people, they couldn't touch, as, as you stated. Fast forward to today, there is, I think, a kind of fear or concern that this represents a kind of alternative power that is not legitimate. Now, this is you know, this is sort of the controversy with the title of my book. When people see black magic, it's sort of like a shiver goes through them. There's something that's very, you know, scary, or even the word voodoo, which is something I, I, I've I kind of looked at too. So those those kinds of tropes and, and, and memes are there too. I love to see a celebration of black magic, black spirituality, instead of this sort of focus on the negatives. So what we see now is young people turning back to these traditions as a form of cultural heritage. It's not something to be feared, it's something to be embraced. But what I see, the power of this, and I'm not sure what there is to be afraid of, is that young people, black people, are turning to reclaim the ancestral spirituality, whatever forms it takes. And sometimes it's just as simple as, you know, I looked at these young people this weekend and they're going and they're cleaning off the cemeteries, the graves. You know, we tend to emphasize, you know, this, the conflict and the resistance part, but we, we, we're we not focusing so much on the healing aspects of the tradition. And I, I'd really like to see more of that. Let's talk then about the healing and the connection. And as you mentioned, younger people, particularly Black women and girls, are connecting to this and, and finding a source of strength and anchor in a world that increasingly feels hostile 
to their interests and to their connections. And you've also talked about the role of Zora Neale Hurston, who, you know, I always think of her work and how in her time she made it clear how the world sees Black women and girls. And so for this tradition to be this space, for them to be affirmed, to work against all of those negative connotations, but to create something positive, it raises the question then, Professor, of who owns or should be part of this tradition. If this is a tradition born out of the experiences of African peoples across the diaspora, connected to the enslavement of Africans here in the United States and across the world, what does it mean when people who do not share that identity then want to come into this space? Do you see that as a challenge, a, a misalignment? Or is it this idea to, to borrow from my friends in the Christian tradition of whosoever will is willing to come into this space with reverence? Yeah, that that's a controversial question. Very early on, as African people post-emancipation left the South, they brought their hoodoo traditions with them. They brought them into the cities. They brought them north. They brought them all over the place. And there's a certain point in the 20th century when these traditions become marketed. They become commodified. Um, and that is when you, you see more people from outside of the African-American community begin to get involved. And I'm talking early 20th century, maybe turn of the century. Fast forward to today, and hoodoo is a brand. It's marketed, it's commodified. The, the cat is already out of the bag. Black people, white people, people, it's an international tradition. But I think that looking at hoodoo as a commodity only sort of obscures what I believe it really is. I was just speaking to a hoodoo practitioner about this very question, and he said, it's in the blood. If you're African-American, it's in, it's in the blood, it's, it's cultural. So you can say, well, I'm not part of the community and it's, I'm not a black person and I, I want to be part of it, but if it's not in the blood, you can't be a part of it. And, and, and the way that I take that is again, there's the practices of the tradition, the magic, the technical things, you know, the healing work, that's, that's all very well and good but the ancestral reverence that gives hoodoo its power. If one is not Black American or does not have African ancestors, you simply don't have that connection. I am arguing strongly that the invisible institution of slavery was an ancestral tradition that has come around today. So that's a long way of saying that People from outside of the community, people who do not have it in the blood, so to speak, they can practice. But if the work is empowered by the, the enslaved ancestors, which I believe it is, that, that will be lacking in the work. I do want to speak to your question about women. I, I, I do believe that women, women are the healers and Zora Neale Hurston bless her, because not only did she identify uh, the sources of this tradition and the roots of this tradition and, and look at women, and she called, she called the Black woman the mule of the earth, that these healing practices um, and the, the, the healing practices that emerged in slavery, they were, they were also based in herbalism, which was called root work. 
but also a deep, deep, deep understanding and relationship to the earth. Way back in the, you know, in the 17, 1600s with, with these African and African-American people, the women were the ones who cultivated those traditions. I am seeing similar things today. There have been, there have been uh, women that have maintained strands and threads of a healing tradition, which we know is so important in Black communities. So I see that women, since women are the healing practitioners, and that this healing tradition also has a lot to say about the human relationship to nature and the earth, I think that it's it's so vitally important that we look at women and gender uh, with respect to the tradition as well, um, because it's so relevant for what's going on today. Last year, I spoke with Dr. Yvonne Chirot, professor of religion at Swarthmore College. She's author of Black Magic, Religion and the African-American Conjuring Tradition. When we return, we hear from a practicing Burak on why it's important for some with Latin American heritage to explore these ancestral traditions and the life and legacy of Pamela Coleman-Smith. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're learning about spiritual traditions that draw from the rich and sometimes complicated history of Black and Brown Americans. Later, we'll hear about Pamela Coleman-Smith, a little-known artist and socialite who's now known for her art on the classic tarot deck. But first, much like hoodoo, the understanding of the spiritual practices of witchcraft have been obscured by years of misinformation. Now, we've all seen witchcraft portrayed in the media and in pop culture as caricatures or as evil beings. But in Latin America, witchcraft is often known as brujeria, and it encompasses a wide range of traditions and experiences. Our next guest says it most commonly refers to communities in Puerto Rico and across the Caribbean, and that it emerged in the 1500s in response to colonization. Dr. Lorraine Montague is a practicing bruja and author of the book, Brujas, The Magic and Power of Witches of Color. Ask Lorraine what it means to practice. Historically, the word bruja has been 
a bad word uh, in a lot of our uh, cultures across Latin America. It has always been linked to bad magic or, or evil workings. So this new iteration of the Buha is something that brings all of these practices from very many traditions out from hiding and saying we were never evil. These things had to be occulted because the Catholic Church or the governments were keeping them suppressed. So now this new iteration is something brand new that is reaching to tradition, but also bringing in new workings. Uh, for this age of Latin American immigrants in America. What I think is is fascinating about this is not just the intergenerational conversations that happen of what does it mean to proudly embrace an identity that for so long was stigmatized. And even now, there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of dismissal, but how that also allows people who traditionally are pushed to the margin to then reclaim that power of that connection, especially because it is part of a syncretic tradition that combines so many other pieces of the diaspora. How did you first get connected? Because you mentioned that for a long time, there was this negative connotation. How did you first get connected? Well, my great-grandmother was a spirit medium in Cuba. And I was always very interested in what was happening and how she came to this country and our exile story and all that. And I experienced some disturbances, to say the least, uh, when I was a preteen. I would see things in my room and I would not know what I was seeing. Things were trying to talk to me. And so I, I asked her, is this what you experienced when you were a child? How did you train? Uh, what do I do about this? And she told me to close my eyes and pray. And that's all I got. And it was really representative of, of the Cuban experience to not talk about what came before. So that curiosity never died in me. And when I got into grad school, I started to dig and explore her ancestry and the traditions that she might have trained under to practice the way that she did. And so there's just a hurt there that I always wanted to heal in our family. Um, and I thought that reconnecting to traditions before Catholicism and Christianity would help me do that. And again, these traditions are very varied. So it was a difficult thing to do because, you know, you've got closed religions like Santeria and Vodou, um, but you also have folk traditions that are passed down through family lines. And if you don't have that line, if that line is broken through exile or violence or whatever else it is, those things aren't passed to you, those folk traditions. Uh, we call it curanderismo, um, which is mostly associated with Mexico, but it really it's there's a, a type of curanderismo in just about every country. This way that we've learned to cope and heal ourselves in the face of wars and exile and, and trauma. Most people may not fully grasp the ways in which these political divisions and political decisions can then disrupt these family traditions, but also create the kind of pain and trauma that you just mentioned. And how do you navigate that trauma and still remain connected and centered? Given that this is such a personal practice, what does this practice or this relationship really look like for you in your everyday life? 
I personally practice around the ancestral altar and I offer this up to others as an entryway because we all have ancestors. So I have a table and I always have, I grew up with an altar. It used to be a Jesus altar or the Virgin Mary or something, uh, a Catholic saint, but now it is made up of cobbled together <laughs> spirituality of mine that borrows from all sorts of traditions that I've learned along the way that have helped me kind of fill the gaps where I didn't have that family tradition passed down to me. So I have, you know, uh, certain deities that I really connect with on the altar. I have photographs of my grandmothers. I have every element represented. So usually a candles for fire and a little bit of dirt for earth and a chalice of water. Air is the tricky one. <laughs> so that one I get creative, like a bell to make some noise or a book that I like to read. So I, I approach that altar every day and sometimes I'll write an intention. Sometimes I'll just speak to my grandmothers because I'm having a hard day. So that's my personal practice. It, it's very practical, I think, my, my iteration of this work. And another part of it is speaking and writing the things that we weren't allowed to speak and write about before. So putting into words maybe secrets or things that we were shamed about, kind of in the form of spells even. Historically, spells kind of abstracted the work and the spells would kind of cover or occult what you were doing because you had to keep things secret in the past to survive. And in my practice, I like to be direct and say things as explicitly as possible. And I think there's like a lot of power in saying, this has happened to me. And so I'll say it in front of my altar sometimes, like this person said this to me <laughs> very explicitly. And it helps me not keep it inside. And I think there's magic in that. Your relationship and, and your practice here is about affirmation and self-affirmation. But it also sounds, Lorraine, like it's an act of resistance, an act of resistance against being told that you just hold on to the pain and just move through or you don't voice what you've been through. And you mention all of the things that you do and all the jobs that you have, but you're also an academic and an author. And earlier this year, in the middle of a pandemic, you released a book on Bruharia and it profiles not just the history of Brujas, but your personal relationship then. Given all the layers to this that you've mentioned for you personally and for others in this relationship tradition, what was the reaction of your family and your community to this book and the very personal stories that are contained in it? This has been one of the most beautiful and difficult parts of the whole project. My family, I write about a lot of difficult things and some of them are upset. And I think this is the consequence of, you know, what I call breaking generational curses and generational trauma is that the person who voices these things that weren't supposed to be voiced breaks the silence. And so a couple of my family members have been triggered and, you know, understandably so. And I tried to prepare for this, but nothing prepares you for your own family kind of turning on you. They, they see my words as a betrayal to them. You know, I've, I've let loose some secrets that we were never supposed to speak. 
So that's been a little hard, but I've also had cousins who say, I'm really happy you did this. And in terms of community, that's just been the most affirming part of it all. From the start, I didn't want this to just be my story. Because we come from so many different traditions across the diaspora, I wanted to make sure that every chapter highlights a different practitioner. I offered the book as a platform for anybody who wanted to share their story. And that part has what is what got me through the pandemic writing this because I was going through a personal loss myself and it was hard to keep going sometimes, but their stories and how generously they shared them with me was, it just reminded me why I was doing this work that we are a community that should be known and these stories should be out there. And I'm so grateful to them. This book is as much theirs as it is mine. There is a power and a resonance in the connection so that even for people who are not a part of this spiritual practice, they can hear in what you just said, this understanding of what it means to be a truth teller and then relegate it to outcasts for telling that truth. And I think that's especially true for women and girls and gender non-binary folks in our society who say, I am facing this in so many ways. Why can't I stand in affirmation of myself? What do you say to young people who are trying to figure out their way navigating this, whether they believe that they are called to be a bruja or just simply dealing with the kinds of challenges that you mentioned? What's the message to young people? You are not alone. I wish I had known that when I was a kid, We didn't have social media, so I really did think I was alone. So I guess my message is to connect in any way that's comfortable for you. It took me many years, decades really, to get to the point where I I wrote a book so publicly and I can speak about it. It started off just helping myself in private, writing little notes to myself, connecting in the way that felt natural and healing at the time. So I would say... Perform your magic however it is that it comes to you. It's, it's very personal, and sometimes it comes to you when you're very still. So I would say give yourself a sanctuary. If, if it's only 20 minutes, even just five minutes uh, in a space where you feel safe, to tap in and see what arises, what calls to you, and start doing that. And hopefully you'll start finding others it's easier now than ever to find others who are doing this work. Try to find those communities in your own town. I think technology makes it easier for us to find community and to curate community in some ways, but it also can be a space for harm and really harm the very people who need that connection. What is the biggest myth or misunderstanding about Bruharia that you want us to know? I guess a myth is that you have to have been from a certain tradition or be from a certain place to be able to practice magic. And I think anybody can do it, though we do have to be conscious of those traditions that we are learning from and do what we can to not appropriate harmfully from traditions that have been historically you know, oppressed for those very same practices, especially when we're talking about native practices. So when we're using sage, for instance, it's a really easy example. Uh, We really should be more conscious of how we're doing our magic 
where things come from. And particularly, I, I'm a white Latina, and I think that part of the magic is to deconstruct how we have harmed each other first before we build our own practices. And just listen. Thank you for the reminder of the need to listen to one another and practice a little cultural humility as we are doing that. Dr. Lorraine Montague is a practicing bruja and author of the book, Brujas, The Magic and Power of Witches of Color. After the break, the forgotten story of Pamela Coleman Smith and how she was so much more than just a tarot artist. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. A 2018 study from the Pew Research Center found that nearly half of all Americans believe in psychics. And just a month after this episode first aired in November of last year, the Washington Post released an article about increased interest in tarot cards during the pandemic. That growth has brought more attention to the people who influence the practice, like artist Pamela Coleman-Smith. Smith illustrated the landmark Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck. Today, more than 100 million copies of that deck are in circulation across the world, and it is now the most popular tarot deck ever made. Coleman Smith made very little money on that commission, and she died in obscurity in 1951. But her mark on tarot was just one small part of her fascinating story. Her life is cataloged in the book Pamela Coleman Smith, Artist, Feminist, and Mystic. Its author is Dr. Elizabeth Foley O'Connor, Associate Professor of English and Director of the Gender Studies Program at Washington College. When I talked to O'Connor last year, I asked her who Pamela Coleman Smith was and why it's so important to tell her story now. I like to think of the book as contributing to work done over the last 30, 40 years to bring her important contributions, not just to the writer Wade Smith deck to the forefront, but also her many other contributions as a editor, a, a folklorist, a poet, a suffragist, and of course, a fine artist and illustrator. The design she did for the 1909 tarot deck are definitely her best known contributions today. Um, and ironically, for much of the last 70 years, haven't even been known under her name until relatively recently. But I, I do think she is an important figure. And I think the time is right to um, get bring more attention to not just the tarot images, but also to the white body of work that she did. So let's talk about some of those gaps in our understanding, because as you said, her work is now known for the tarot deck and her art and the illustrations. So I, I emphasize now known because for so long, she was not even credited for that work. But beyond filling in those gaps around her artistry, there are now these questions about her identity and her ancestry with 
many people saying, oh, she was a woman of color. Let's affirm this in the spiritual circle. But your work points out that actually her racial identity was is much less clear when we think about her place in that space. Talk to us about what we do know about her background and why that is significant given the time that she was actually working. Yeah, it's very significant to me. And you're exactly right that more recently, um, many people in the tarot community and beyond have embraced her as a woman of color. And what I think is important to note is that she was perceived by many, many, many of her friends and contemporaries as a person of color. She was consistently othered. She was viewed as uh, Black, as Afro-Jamaican. And I think all of that racial othering definitely does contribute to her reception that she had in the early decades of the 20th century. But then uh, that was followed quite precipitously by a decline into poverty and anonymity. And as you know, the card, the deck was really not known under her name for uh, most of the 20th century. The other part of this is that she was born into wealthy white Brooklyn, New York-based families on both her mother and her father's side. And one of the reasons why so many people uh, both today and even during her lifetime, thought that she was a person of color, you know, can be seen in lots of photographic evidence, but we just don't know. She may have been adopted. You know, one thing I can say is that she was born February 16th in London, but her birth certificate was actually not registered until the end of March. And that kind of delay was a bit unusual, but we just don't know why. There is this complex mystery surrounding the circumstances of her birth, but also the conditions at the end of her life. But in between those two markers is this woman who, in spite of being othered because of a an ambiguous racial identity, and I say ambiguous in terms of how it was perceived at the time, there was uh, othering and questions about her uh, gender identity and her sexual orientation and a lot of claims made. And in spite of that othering, and in some ways maybe because of the othering, Pamela Coleman Smith played this key role in the lives of other prominent people, thinking about Yates, for example, or, or T.S. Eliot. How was she able at that time in history to play this key role? And why do you think it's important to, to affirm that and lift it up in understanding her life? I think it's super central to understanding her life. Pamela Coleman Smith, in many ways, was a key connector of many different strains of modernist literature and art and culture in the early 20th century. You mentioned W.B. Yeats, and um, she collaborated with him. One of her first published illustrations were of uh, was of a 1896 play he did, The Land of Heart's Desire. Yeats was a key mentor and helped her in the creation of The Green Sheaf, was the little magazine that she edited and published by herself. Um, she was one of Yeats's chanters uh, as a group of people who performed his poems. She famously actually kind of broke with him after a few years because, she, and, and this sets up a pattern that 
when she disagreed with people, she wasn't one to go along, right? She had her own ideas and her own beliefs about her art and the direction it should take. And she didn't suffer fools, right? And if somebody disagreed with her, she was not going to defer, especially if it was a more powerful person. And her little magazine, The Green Chief, is a great example of her ability to bring together all of these disparate groups that often were, that did kind of interact, but are often by literary historians and others not seen so much as, as interacting. Like The Green Chief has contributions by many members of the Irish Literary Revival, uh, J.M. Singh and Lady Augusta Gregory and A.E., and those are alongside more mystical contributions to so her Golden Dawn friends, and then work by different Lyceum uh, theater actors, and then a lot of uh, unknown women writers. Uh, some of those, I think, are pseudonyms, but unfortunately, most of the records for the Green Chief were destroyed or lost, and we don't we don't have some of that background. Pamela Coleman-Smith was a Renaissance woman in the truest sense of the word, being connected to so many different areas of art and culture and, and really cultivating that appreciation. But as you mentioned, she is most well known for her work on tarot and the tarot deck and how her creations and illustrations live on long past her time. What was her artistic style look? like in connection to the tarot deck and what do we see now in terms of where that art continues to exist oh that's a great question so pamela like a lot of artists especially of this time period had a diverse series of influences she was very influenced by the arts and crafts movement and some of the children's book illustrations caldecott and kate greenaway of the late 19th century she studied at pratt under arthur wesley dow where she was introduced to the influence of japanese artists you know, her style, like many artists, did evolve over, you know, the roughly 40 years or so that she was most active. Beginning in the early 20th century, she started to have these visions. It's believed, most closely believed to be a type of synesthesia, right, where she would hear music um, and instead of maybe seeing colors, see actually visions. You know, she talked about it as being uh, a window opened into another world. And the tarot images, their tarot designs, which were published in, uh, which were finished in December of 1909. It's really unclear when she started working on them. Um, she had several exhibitions uh, at Alfred Steglitz's Fine Art Gallery in New York. In that first Steglitz exhibit in 1907, there's several images that are similar actually, to the tarot designs. And that, you know, there's been so much controversy. A.E. Waite um, kind of stirred some of this. He famously talked about how Pamela was a draughts, a draughtsman, right? She hadn't, she had to be spoon fed. But there is evidence that she was drawing on some of these images and starting not necessarily to create tarot designs, but a lot of the symbolism and an imagery that she would incorporate into the tarot uh, cards was started several years earlier, right? And you can see, you know, where there's you know, the focus on the gender fluid characters and a lot of uh, some of the repeating 
images and positionings that uh, occur throughout. There's also a lot of connections between some of the uh, imagery and symbolism from the these minor arcana cards with her fine art paintings from the time. And in the book, I talk about how the cards were an important pivotal moment for the development of her own kind of feminist symbolic lexicon. She was really far ahead of her time and yet remains this underappreciated figure in so many areas. And there's a Connecticut connection here because U.S. Games, which is based here in Stanford, Connecticut, is the largest distributor of the Waitsmith Tarot. And one of the things that the founder of that company, Stuart Kaplan, who uh, recently passed away, one of his commitments was to tell the story of Pamela Coleman Smith and to draw attention to her work in the late 80s. And while that may not have caught on as broadly as one would have hoped, it does raise all of these questions about her legacy that many people take for granted and understanding her place in these broader social, political, artistic movements. What is one thing that surprised you or stands out to you as you were doing the research for your book? Oh, so many things. I just want to just very briefly mentioned that Stuart Kaplan was just so important. His work in really began in the 70s in traveling to England and being able to uh, acquire many uh, books of her personal library, for example. And it's through some of those books that we were able to get a better sense of her relationship with Nora Lake, her long-term partner in the last 25 years of her life or so. And he was a tireless promoter of Pamela and really was one of the first people to advocate that the deck should be known as the Rider-Waite-Smith deck and not just the Rider-Waite deck. One of the difficulties connected to, you know, what was the most surprising thing is that there's no one archive on Pamela Coleman-Smith, right? Because she is this, often seen as this quote-unquote minor player in a lot of better known people's stories, there's little bits of things. But one of the biggest and to me most unexpected discoveries actually happened at the Women's uh, Library at the London School of Economics. I kept like getting shushed for the librarians because I kept like making, (laughs) I was just so shocked by the things I found. She was jailed for women's suffrage. She had her name on a uh, banner. Uh, somebody who spent a night in in Royal Holloway Prison for suffrage. And one of the great things about reading all of Pamela Coleman Smith's letters is that her distinctive and irrepressive voice really comes through. She was a woman in so many ways ahead of her time, but her letters are great because there's not that kind of prim and proper voice. She uh, loved to call things out, (laughs) be it um, money that she thought people were due or publishers who weren't giving her, you know, the royalties that she felt she deserved or other kinds of hypocrisy classism and sexism. You know, to fight for women's rights, to demand access to the ballot at that time was a criminal offense. And it risked a lot when women were particularly vulnerable to the actions of the state. What do you see as Pamela Coleman Smith's legacy? 
Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think Pamela Coleman-Smith is a, a wonderful person to focus on for the early 21st century because she was a woman truly ahead of her time. You mentioned before her gender identity, and I didn't really address that part of the question. And uh, we don't know a lot of specifics. There is, as I mentioned earlier, some pretty good evidence that her long-term partnership with Nora Lake was more than just a kind of platonic friendship. You know, again, lesbianism was really only becoming like emerging as a sexual identity, right? In the and a cultural identity in the early 20th century. But one of the things that strikes me is that early in her career, after she returned to England in 1900, she adapted this pixie identity. She was really drawn to trickster figures. She did a whole series of folklore on uh, the Afro-Jamaican Anansi figure, but she also really was interested in pixies. And for years, she signed all of her correspondence in green ink and you can read into that what you may, as Pixie. And I think she really was trying to carve out for herself um, a space that was not as closely controlled by uh, strict gender identities, be it male or female. She never married or had children, and she primarily had very close relationships with women. But I do think she is a great figure because she pretty early on figured out who she was and what she wanted, and she was not going to be constrained by others who wanted to put her in preordained boxes, right? And so much of that was connected to questions about her race, her gender, her class, all of these things. And, you know, in after World War I in 1919, she actually moved to Cornwall, uh, the lizard and the, the kind of tip, southwest tip of England. She seems to have wanted to distance herself from London. I'm sure the war pay, played a role in it. Um, I think she, you know, wanted an escape. I mean, it's beautiful. It's right by the water. It's possible that it reminded her of the time she spent in Jamaica as an adolescent. But that time, even though it was in Cornwall that she eventually met Nora, she was very much plagued with poverty and it was it was it was a hard time for her. That was Dr. Elizabeth Foley O'Connor, Associate Professor of English and Director of the Gender Studies Program at Washington College. I spoke with her last year about her book, Pamela Coleman Smith, Artist, Feminist and Mystic. Disrupted is produced by J. Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang Barnum, and Katie Tolarski. This episode was originally produced by James Scoble Wolf and Shekinah Collier. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you have feedback or ideas for this show, just email us at disrupted at ctpublic.org. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>